There was an elderly grandfather who was very wealthy. And because uh, he was going deaf, he decided to go to the doctor and get a hearing aid, which he did. And two weeks later, he came back to the same doctor, sort of for a follow-up checkup. And um, the doctor said all was well and asked how he felt about it. And he said, great, I'm able to hear everything so well, so much better than ever before. And the doctor said, I'm sure your family must be pleased that you're able to hear, whereas before you couldn't. I'm sure they must be thrilled now that you can join in. He smiled and he said, well, I haven't told them yet. He said, for the last two weeks, I've just been hanging around and listening to people's conversations. And he said, you know what? I've changed my will twice. (laughs) Couple of things that I'm very grateful for. Number one is God's omniscience. He knows everything before it happens. He knows me. He knows all of my failures in advance. He knows me and yet he loves me. And I'm also grateful that God doesn't change. That God is consistent. Tonight we're going to see just how much God knows, how powerful God is, and how we ought to respond to those attributes of God. We're confronted over and over again in these chapters with the incomparable, unique nature of sovereign God. There's no one like him. And God calls upon the other false gods to a challenge. To do what only God can do, and that is to predict with incredible accuracy the future of world events. When we talk about the nature of God, it's an important subject. Every now and then I'll hear somebody say things like, Well, I don't care about theology. I don't care about doctrine. That's not important to me. I just want to love Jesus. And while I admire the simplicity of that statement, the truth of the matter is, it is essential that you understand true doctrine, true theology. You don't have to get a theological degree. But part of your moral and spiritual compass in life is based upon truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of what God can do. And if we're off about God... We're going to be off about everything else in life. Imagine how you'd feel if you were on an airplane going to Hawaii on the way to Honolulu and the uh, pilot got on the loudspeaker of the airplane and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, we're having a little bit of trouble with our navigational equipment. And what that means is we're going to be just a couple degrees off probably in our planning. Well, a couple of degrees off at that moment might not mean much, but go out into the Pacific Ocean where there's not a lot of options. And a couple of degrees can mean hundreds of miles. It's essential that they're accurate. And God makes that point clear. The other nations around Israel, including Babylon, which will be mentioned here, including the Assyrians, including all of the nations that surrounded Israel, made idols, statues, figurines that they ascribed attributes to, and then they worshipped those deities, those false deities. What they were doing is bringing God, deity, down to a manageable size. They had trouble with the invisible nature of God. And they had trouble with the omniscient nature of God. So... Their ideas of God were much less than the biblical ideal of sovereign God. They brought God down to a manageable size, even like a human, and projected human attributes onto that God and then worshipped the God that they had made. Because they couldn't deal with the idea of sovereign, incomparable, unique, omniscient, omnipotent, powerful God. They couldn't fit the ideal of God in their own thinking. But as someone once wisely said, if God was small enough for our minds, he wouldn't be big enough for our problems. And so, though you won't be able to figure out God, that's okay. That's what's so God about God. He's higher than we are. He's greater than we are. Chapter 44 
is basically God saying, I formed you. That's the theme. I formed you. Chapter 45, God says, I will save you. In chapter 46, God declares, I will carry you. I formed you. I will save you. I will carry you. Now, the first five verses of chapter 44 tie into the theme of the previous chapter. And that is, though Israel has sinned in the past, though Israel has gone through great tribulation in the past and will in the future, yet God has an incredible plan for his people. He says, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now you'll notice there's a few different names that are used almost interchangeably. On one hand, you have Jacob. That's the old name of Israel. Jacob means heel catcher or supplanter, one who trips up another. Then there's the name Israel, one who fights victoriously with God or prince of God. And then you have this third title, this title of honor, Jeshurun, which means upright one, one who stands upright, one who is just, one who is straight. Now, often the first two, Jacob and Israel, are used interchangeably, really antithetically. One is opposed to the other. When God wants to speak about the two sides of the same nature, he will often combine the terms. Jacob refers to the man of the flesh, Israel, the man of the spirit. One is the carnal nature, one is the spiritual nature. And then that third title, Jeshurun, the upright one. The idea here then is God is saying, no matter how you've blown it in the past, I'm not going to forsake you. My plan for your future is still intact and declares him to be the upright one, speaking futuristically. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. Of course, this was partially fulfilled at Pentecost, but it will be completely fulfilled when Jesus comes again at his second advent. It was Peter on the day of Pentecost who quoted Joel, which is a very similar prediction. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. But then, quoting Joel, he goes off into the future, up into the day of the Lord, when he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath. If you were to look into the future of what God has in store for Israel, and you come to the time of severe trouble, Jacob's trouble, It is called in scripture. Jeremiah refers to the great tribulation as the time of Jacob's trouble. You also discover that though it is a time of Jacob's trouble, the worst period of world history yet to come, it also will be a time of Israel's salvation. Even Paul predicts this. Israel will be saved. And the book of Revelation tells us there will be 144,000 Jewish people from the 12 tribes who will be present during that time. I don't know if you've ever had personal contact with a Jewish person who has come to know Christ. There is a fire in their bones. There is an excitement so often. Now, 12 Jewish evangelists changed their world. I'm speaking about the apostles. They turned their world upside down. That was the, um, that was what they said in Jerusalem about them. That was their charge against them. These men have turned the world upside down. Twelve. Really eleven. Judas was gone and then somebody else took his place. Imagine what twelve thousand times twelve can do. A hundred and forty-four thousand. God will pour out his spirit and Israel will be saved in that time.
One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You see God's singular claim. There is no deity. Even though other nations have gods and call on them by name, I and I alone am God. I'm the first. I'm the last. There is no other. Now it is the Lord Jesus who in the book of Revelation says this about himself. In chapters 1, in chapter 2, And especially in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. Now keep that in mind. In the Old Testament, sovereign God, the God of Israel, says, I'm the first and the last. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ says, I am the first and the last. If anybody ever tells you, that there's no record of Jesus being called God in the New Testament, or that Jesus never claimed to be God, ask them which Bible they read. It's all over the place. So often, even the enemies of Jesus knew what his claims were. It was on the Mount of Temptation, when Satan suggested that Jesus bow down and worship him, that Jesus said, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. But then Jesus himself received worship when Thomas bowed before him and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say, no, Thomas, you got that wrong. Worship only the Lord your God. No, Jesus received his worship. He spoke to the Jewish leaders about Abraham, saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And they said, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you talk about Abraham. And then he said, using that Old Testament formula for timelessness, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying. In John chapter 8, Jesus asked, Many good works I have done. For which good work do you stone me? They said, Not for any good work, but because you being a man are constantly making yourself out to be God. They knew exactly who Jesus claimed to be. And he states it. When in Revelation 22, he says, I am the first, I am the last. Listen, if Jesus isn't God, he deserves an Academy Award because of what he said and what he did. He revealed that he was omniscient. He said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He could read their minds. When they would speak softly to one another, Jesus from the other side of the room heard it and commented on it. He walked on the water. He calmed storms. He raised the dead. He performed the very works of God. I am the first and the last. Verse 7 And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now he calls upon these nations and their gods to do what only God can do, predict the future. Let's uh, see how you false gods can fare when it comes to the test of predictive prophecy. Mankind tries to predict the future. We can't even get the weather right. The best we can do is offer some prognostication based upon trends and based upon current information. I heard about a guy driving through West Texas and he pulled into a 
filling station to get gas. He saw a rope hanging from a sign, and the sign said, Weather Forecaster. And so he asked the station attendant, "Um, Excuse me, but how could you tell the weather from a rope dangling from a sign? The old Texan said, Well, pretty simple. When that rope is dangling back and forth, it's windy. When that rope is wet, that's rain. If it's frozen stiff, snow. And if that rope is gone, tornado. (laughs) Well, that's about the best they can do. It's not that much better than some of the uh, news forecasters when it comes to the weather. Now, beginning in verse 9, it's a, it's a brilliant polemic, an argument against these false idols. Satire. And it would be good to later on compare this to Psalm 115, where the psalmist talks about the idols that these nations have cast. They have eyes, but they can't see. Ears, but they can't hear. Feet, but they can't walk. Hands, but they can't handle or touch. Those who make an image... All of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. Now you're going to notice this word ashamed appears three or four times in the text. God is saying, shame on you. The very idea that would make you think you can form a God. No, it's you, you have it backwards. It's God who forms you. You're created in God's image. You've got to turn around thinking you can form God in your image. Whenever man forms God in his image, that's the definition of idolatry. Creating God in our image, whatever that image might be. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. You get a picture of a a metal worker and he's fashioning an image. And as he's over the fire, he's sweating and he's thirsty and he gets hungry because he's working all day long. That God can't refresh him. He's building an image that he will designate after he's done his, ah, this is my God, and start to worship it. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with a compass, makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire, and with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His carved image. He falls down before it and worships, prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. What a contrast. As they're sweating, slaving, working, They can't be renewed. They can't be refreshed. They need to rest. Contrast that to what God himself says at the end of chapter 40 of Isaiah. They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, walk and not faint. God renews with strength his people. These false idol makers need the strength, but their God can't provide it. All over Asia, especially in countries like Burma, India, Sri Lanka, I've watched people bow before thousands of false images. I've been in temples where people worship rats. And they allow the rats to eat the food that normally would go to people. I have watched people steer their vehicles out of the way of holy cows. Seriously, it's, it's not just a saying. It's not just holy cow. They really have holy cows. I even heard of one accident where a bus driver had to make a split decision where in the road there was a pedestrian and a cow, and he opted to swerve out of the way of the cow and killed the human being. Because in the status of karma, the cow was the highest in reincarnated forms. I've watched people grovel on the ground before trees and little images, make long pilgrimages, go into trances, all because of the lies of idolatry looking for deliverance, looking for meaning of life, and not being able to find it. Now, there is, a, there is a logical way to observe nature, and there is an illogical way to observe nature. The logical way to observe nature is to be able to look at the glory of God, the handiwork of God, as the psalmist said. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day they utter their speech. Night unto night they reveal knowledge. To be able to look at nature and say, there is design here. And that design necessitates a designer. And to be able to observe the creation and realize that God is separate and distinct from The creation. The illogical way to look at nature is to say, what a beautiful creation that exists or nature that I see. God must be in nature. Nature is God. That tree is God. The sky is God. The mountain is all part of the divine being, the divine mind. That belief system is known as pantheism. From the Greek word pan theos, pan everything or all theos God. Everything is God. It's the chief belief system of the new age mentality. It used to be the chief belief system of these ancient peoples, of the ancient Greek philosophers, of the later Roman philosophers. The logical way is to look at it and say, no, this creation necessitates a creator. It's what Paul remarked on in the book of Romans when he said they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. They do not know nor understand, verse 18, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. That's interesting. Because of their refusal to respond to the light that God had given them through creation, through nature. It says here, for he, that is God, shut their eyes so that they cannot see. It would indicate that God responds to the choices that he allows mankind to make. And if mankind chooses to harden his heart, God will make firm the decision that mankind has made. We see it in the life of Pharaoh. You go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and you read over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God did something else, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. God did another miracle, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you eventually come to the phrase, and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God firmed up, confirmed, you might say, the decision that Pharaoh made against God. Now, here's the good news. You make a decision for God. God will firm that decision and confirm that. You make a movement toward God, He will strengthen you. If you draw near unto Him, God will draw near unto you. 
And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And I shall make the rest of it an abomination. So I fall down before a block of wood. It's so ludicrous. The most useful part of the wood is the part they burned in the fire to get warm and cook their food with. That was the most useful part. The most useless part is the part that they used to make the idol. The Roman statesman Cicero said that there is a seed of religion or faith, belief, in every man. He noted that mankind is a religious creature. We want to believe something. And this is what happens when we remove revelation, the Bible. We are left with imagination. As soon as you push away God's revelation about himself, the only thing you have left is the imagination of one's own mind. That's idolatry. And you've heard it before in statements like, well, I picture God like this, or my idea of God is that. See, they're coming up with their own God. They're creating God in their image. Well, I don't picture God as a judge who would judge people for the sins that they commit. I picture God as some benevolent grandfatherly type who just lets people do whatever they want. That's imagination, not revelation. God is love, but God is just. God reveals himself, and you push that away, and you are left with idolatry. He feeds on ashes, verse 20. A deceived heart has turned him aside. He cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? As he's holding that image. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. There's that very essential phrase. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So the theme of this chapter is God saying, I formed you. Here's these... uh, Image makers forming their gods. God saying, but I formed you. And I love verse 22. As God says to his people, his people whom have sinned, failed. That's been their history. It's been their legacy. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. In Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. The blessedness of being forgiven by God. The greatest need of the human heart is for forgiveness. We have an innate sense of guilt that's built in. A void, an emptiness. We crave to know the meaning and purpose of life. And yet we know there's a roadblock. Innately we have that guilt nature. You could test that out. If when you meet somebody you say, I know all about you. I've been told about you. Watch their face. (laughs) Who told you? How do you know? What do you know? I read an interesting statement by Carl Menninger, who was a famous psychiatrist, who said, if my patients were assured that they had forgiveness, he said 75% of them could be released from their hospitals tomorrow. A couple years ago, I found a new gimmick that they tried to sell out on the market. It's called disposable guilt bags. I know it sounds crazy, and I describe it, it sounds even crazier. Ten ordinary small paper bags with a set of instructions. It was $2.50 per kit. 
A set of instructions. The instructions read thus. Place the bag securely over your mouth and take a deep breath and blow all of your guilt out. And then dispose of the bag immediately. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? You know what's crazier? The Associated Press reported that in the first few days, they sold 2,500 bags or kits at $2.50 a pop. You do the math. Here's a whole market that they have discovered because people know they're guilty. But you can't dispose of your guilt by blowing into a paper bag. Your sins have to be blotted out by a loving creator who paid the penalty for guilt by sending his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb. It's the second time he stated that. I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. It's very interesting that God says, I formed you from the womb. You know, the Bible over and over again acknowledges personhood from the moment of conception. God doesn't say, well, it's just an embryo or a zygote or a fetus, but a person. Psalm 139 describes the intricacies with which our creator formed the human body. God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I called you to be a prophet to the nations. Now, we live in a country and an emerging culture where we call a newly formed child a mass of tissue, a fetus. And we're willing to treat that human being as if it's disposable as if he or she is disposable, sort of like a ruptured appendix. Did you know that from the ruling of Roe versus Wade, the abortion ruling, in our country we have killed over 20 million people. That is roughly the population base of the country of Canada since that ruling. God says, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad. I love that. Who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness. God is showing himself to be much greater, much higher, more sovereign, more transcendent than any of these false gods and goddesses that were created by these nations around them. And... uh, He says he turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness. In the last, well, let's say 100 years or so, the knowledge of man has been growing at an exponential rate. It's been estimated that if you could measure the accumulated knowledge of mankind from the beginning of history to the year 1845 and represented it by one inch, then the knowledge we've accumulated since 1845 to 1945, just a hundred years later, would be represented by three inches. The beginning of time to 1845, one inch, and just a hundred years later, three inches. And the study went on to say, the knowledge we've accumulated as a human race from 1945 to 1975 would be represented by the height of the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. Now, that's 1975. We're almost in 2005. The exponential increase of knowledge is amazing. And you know what we've learned? We've learned how dumb we are. (laughs) We have. Take the scientific journals of the last 100, 200 years, and that'll prove the point. 
We think we know so much, but we have to consistently update our science journals. If you were to try to treat a patient based upon the medical knowledge of the last 100 or 200 years, all of it, you'd kill them. Because we make new discoveries. We find out how wrong we are. In Romans 1, Paul says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So God says, I've got the advantage. I know everything before it happens. That's why I can make the declarations. God is all wise and all knowing, and he makes their knowledge foolishness. Who confirms the word of a servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Now that's interesting because Jerusalem was a city at that point. The temple was intact at that moment. Judah was doing relatively well at the time this was spoken. So what would God mean? We'll read on. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Keep in mind that at the time this was uttered by Isaiah, Jerusalem was a city intact, was not destroyed, and wouldn't be destroyed till 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, who were not even a significant world power at all. Yet, he predicts that the temple foundation will be rebuilt, implying that the temple will be destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But it would be rebuilt when Cyrus, and he mentions him in verse 28, and he'll mention him again in verse 45. Up to this point, he's just alluded to him. Now he mentions him by name. He mentions also in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And then he mentions Cyrus. Now Josephus tells us, and I mentioned this last week, that the prophet Daniel showed him Isaiah's prophecy concerning himself, and he was quite impressed. When he read his own name that had been written down 160 years before he was even born, it made an impression on him. You can see how it would. I dug up the report in the writings of Josephus. Let me read it to you. He said, Now Cyrus learned this as to the building of the temple by reading the book that Isaiah had left of his own prophecies years before. These things Isaiah foretold 140 years before the temple was destroyed. When Cyrus therefore read them and admitted their divine character in impulse and emulation seized him to do what was written. He discovered that it was foretold that he would release the Jews, allow them to rebuild the temple. That's exactly what he did. What God is doing here is showing again his incomparability, his unique nature. And we can trust him. If, if God who said there's going to be a guy named Cyrus, he's going to allow the temple to be rebuilt. If God can be that detailed and that came true, we can surely bank on the rest of scripture. Now imagine the Jewish nation hearing this and seeing it come true. And then thinking back to the prophecy that Isaiah gave of Emmanuel, of the virgin birth, of the coming of their Messiah, they could rest assured that the prophecies written in the Old Testament would come to pass. So the theme in chapter 44 is, I formed you. Chapter 45, the theme is, I will save you. You'll find reference to that. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, that's to Cyrus as a a Gentile deliverer, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. By the way, he subdued 46 nations. That's how vast his takeover was. And loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors or the leaved gates so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and hidden riches of secret places 
that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I named you, though you have not known me. Imagine being Cyrus and being shown that. I've known you by name. This is what happened. This is what you're going to do. Nebuchadnezzar became the king of Babylon. He was the son of Nabopolassar. Once Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom steadily went downhill in strength. There was a number of short-term kings, a number of military coups. They ended in failure until finally a king by the name of Nabonidus was elected to the throne of Babylon. Nabonidus decided to take the armies of Babylon and scoot out of town and go to northern Arabia and parts of Israel and wage war. When he did, a co-regent, his son, Belshazzar, was put in his place. Belshazzar, as you remember in the book of Daniel, was a party animal. And in the book of Daniel, he's having this huge party, bringing out the gold vessels from the temple that they had taken from the captivity. And there was a handwriting on the wall, a man's hand that basically said, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. While that handwriting was going on, this very scripture was being fulfilled. Now keep in mind the Babylonians thought that their city was absolutely impregnable. Nobody has taken it over in the past. They had built it up as one of the seven wonders of the world. The walls of Babylon, 317 feet tall, 87 feet thick. You could run 11 chariots abreast in a race on top of the walls of Babylon. 60-mile perimeter of the wall was built around the city. Every 65 feet were gates, um, excuse me, towers that were built to protect the city, watchtowers. And through the middle of the city, the river Euphrates ran through it. You've seen pictures of the Euphrates River from the last Gulf skirmish in Iraq as they did those flybys of the Euphrates River. The river ran right through town. And there were gates that kept it. Kept it. These gates were closed except during the night that Cyrus came into the town. History tells us that um, Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, who merged the Medo-Persian Empire, two empires brought them together, after seven years accumulated enough strength to attack Babylon. It was late September in the year 539 B.C. when Cyrus, under his general, Ugabaru, and his troops, attacked the city upstream from Babylon, the city of Opus, and they gained control of the canal system of Babylon. On October 12, 539 B.C., they diverted the river upstream from the city of Babylon and they diverted it into another channel. And the historian Herodotus tells us that the level of the river dropped to the height of a man's thigh. They were able to go in through the city in a relative bloodless battle without destroying the city and completely take it over. The gates that came and separated the river, Euphrates, these bronze gates, were left unlocked. So they came, went under the gates, through the river, opened the gates. The Babylonian army came in, or the, excuse me, the Medo-Persian army came in to the city of Babylon and took it over. Cyrus was the one who ordered it. Cyrus was in control with his general. And they came through the riverbed dried it up, basically, came through it, and took over the city. So in verse 4, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
How impressive is this prophecy that God would name the very man who would be responsible almost 200 years before his birth, would also predict that the city of Jerusalem would be rebuilt, implying that it must be destroyed. What would the odds be for all of this to occur? It's estimated that the odds for these two prophecies to come to pass the way they were written would be 1 in 10 to the 14th power. Now let's suppose that I predicted that I would win the lottery. And I did. If I won the lottery after predicting that I would on a certain day, the odds of me doing that would be 1 in 10 million. If I won the lottery, which don't worry, I'm not even looking for that, not even trying. If I predicted that I would win it a second time, and I did, the odds would be 1 in 10 to the 14th power. The same odds for these prophecies to come true as they came true. Now, that's just a sampling of prophecy. There's a great book that was put out years ago by Peter Stoner, a professor from Westmont College at the time. He was a professor of mathematics. And through mathematical probability, he wrote a book called Science Speaks, and he he gives the estimation of fulfilled prophecy. This is one of them. He looks at messianic prophecies. You probably know there's over 300 predictions about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah, where he would be born, what he would do, his family line, etc. 300 direct prophecies as well as inferences. 330 to be closer to the exact number. Peter Stoner looks at eight of those predictions and said the odds of one man in history fulfilling eight predictions that Jesus fulfilled would be one in ten to the 17th power. And he he visualizes it using silver dollars. Stoner said, you could take that number if you had silver dollars and fill the entire state of Texas two feet thick with that many silver dollars. If you painted one, blindfolded a guy, had him walk through the state of Texas and pick out the very silver dollar you had pre-marked, the odds of him doing so would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. But Stoner has this elaborate labyrinth of fulfilled predictions where he says if you take 48 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled keep in mind he fulfilled 300 if you took 48 prophecies the odds of that coming the mathematic probability would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power now if 1 in 10 if 10 to the 17th power is silver dollars filling the state of Texas. If you filled the United States of America, that's 10 to the 18th power. If you filled the continents of Asia and Africa, two feet thick of silver dollars, that's 10 to the 19th power. The odds of one man in history to fulfill 48 predictions, one in 10 to the 157th power. So for somebody to come along and look at these predictions and go, oh, it's coincidence, is not a clear thinker. It's absolutely astonishing. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create evil or calamity. I, the Lord do all of these things. There's a reference to light and darkness. The religion called Zoroastrianism was invented in Persia. They taught that Mazda was the god of light. And they gave another name, Ariman, to the god of darkness. And they worshipped these deities. God is saying, I created the light. I created the darkness. It was a pun against their false religion. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up. Let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Paul uses this argument in the book of Romans, chapter 9, saying, Will the thing say to him that formed him, Why have you made me thus? 
Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. It seems that some were questioning God's use of a foreign power, a foreign king, Cyrus, to release his people, the Jews, back to their own country. Why would God use this guy and call him his servant? God is basically saying, what right do you have to question me? I'm the potter, you're the clay. After all, if Cyrus was shown the words of Isaiah and obeyed them, and the children of Israel heard the words of Isaiah and disobeyed them, why shouldn't God use someone who will read the Bible and say, that's God's word. I'm gonna, God has every right to choose and use whom he pleases. There's an old Greek saying that says the dice of the gods are loaded. (laughs) In other words, don't try to fight against the gods. The Greeks would say you can't win. Well, don't try to fight against God. There's only one true God. You'll never win. Have you ever heard a person say a judgment day? I'm going to have a few things to say to God. Oh, really? Like that's going to help? Like he's going to go, oh, you're right. I get your point. I made the earth, he says. I created man on it. I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up, verse 13, in righteousness. I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush, And the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. You shall come over in chains. They shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God who hide yourself. O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed And also disgraced, all of them, they shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor disgraced forever and ever. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak in righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge. Who carried the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Now notice the difference, verse 15 and verse 17 and verse 20. God says, I'm the Savior. And then the contrast in verse 20, they pray to a God that cannot save. So there's the theme of that chapter. I will save you. I have formed you. And now God says, I will save you. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it? From that time, have not I the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now, one of my favorite writers is an old dead guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. I've always enjoyed the writings of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. An eloquent speaker, I've heard, a great writer, I know. This was the verse of scripture that brought Charles Spurgeon to salvation. Here's the story. He was going to church on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday. A snowstorm hit London. He couldn't make it to his normal church. He stopped at a little church in the city along the way. 
the preacher who preached at that church also couldn't make it to church because of the snowstorm, so they had no preacher. Spurgeon said an unknown man, didn't know his name, and an uneducated man stood up and pounded the pulpit and preached on this verse, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. He ran out of points, he ran out of application, he just kept pounding the pulpit, and he pointed at young Spurgeon who had a miserable look on his face and said, And if you look to the Lord Jesus Christ you can be saved. And that's what did it for him. He gave his heart, he said, to the Lord Jesus Christ that day with an imperfect vessel, but the Lord chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon began his walk with Christ because of that verse of Scripture. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. In Philippians 2, Paul uses this verse to speak of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which every name, every knee will bow. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now chapter 46 is short, so we can make it through in the next five minutes. <laughs> chapter 44, I formed you. Chapter 45, I'll save you. Chapter 46, I will carry you. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Bel was the Babylonian sun god. This is a cognate form of Baal or Baal, also called Marduk by the Babylonians. He was worshipped as one of their principal deities. Nebo was called the son of Marduk. And was the god of wisdom and learning. Nebo was also the patron god of all of the emperors of Babylon. And so you hear his name in so many of their names. Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopalazar, Nabonidus. All have that term Nebo in it. That's the god that was their patron god. Here's a picture of these false gods, these images, on the backs of donkeys and cattle bowing down becoming a burden to the very beasts. And the gods and the animals and the people are going into captivity together. The gods couldn't help them, couldn't save them. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. What a contrast to these idols that the people must carry. You know, false religion will be a burden to you. Only God can carry you and your burdens. God says, I will uphold you, I will carry you. By the way, verse 4 is the foundation of a stanza from a very famous hymn, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. It was the theme song to the late J. Vernon McGee's daily radio program. But there was a a stanza in that song that is often kept out of the hymnals based on this verse that reads, Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born from birth through life into old age god never changes god will always be there for you to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and make it a god. 
and he makes it a God. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands from its place. It shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God sees... Well, let me rephrase that. We see completely the opposite the way God sees. God sees the end from the beginning. We have to start at the beginning and work our way to the end. Our knowledge is accumulated. Our knowledge is gradual. God's knowledge is all-encompassing and instant. At the very beginning, he knows the end. You know, the best we can do is a rope dangling from a sign. God knows it all. Calling a bird of prey from the east, that Cyrus, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion... For Israel, my glory. Prediction of Jesus Christ. God will place his salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. I have formed you. I will save you. I will carry you. Let the Lord carry you tonight. You've got burdens. Don't trust in anything else. They'll become a burden to you. Let God carry your burdens. Corrie ten Boom, you probably know her story, was in concentration camps in Europe. And she would often remember a little axiom that she carried around in her mind and heart and would repeat it in the darkest times. She'd repeat it to herself over and over again. Look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus, be at rest. You look around, it's distressing what's going on in this world. Who can bear those burdens? You look within for answers, you get depressed. If you know yourself well. If you don't, just ask your wife or your husband or your kids or anybody who's your friend, they'll tell you. But look to Jesus and be at rest. And so, Heavenly Father... We rest in you because there is none like you who declares the end from the beginning, who knows all about us. And Lord, you know the needs that we came in this building with tonight. Because of that, Lord, we're assured that you have the answer and the only solution. If we look around for the answer, we'll surely be distressed. If we look within through self-help, we're only going to be depressed Our rest comes only in you. Thank you, Lord, that it's available to us tonight. Thank you for your great grace. And thank you for this place that for years has been a legacy of grace, calling people to repentance and salvation and rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand? As God said to Israel, I formed you, I saved you, I will carry you. He says that to you. He's formed you. And he will save you. And he will carry you. The Bible says, cast all your cares upon him. Because he does care for you. The pastors are down here at the front to pray with you to bear your burdens in prayer before the Lord. And so we would encourage you tonight, rather than trying to carry your own load, which is sure to weigh you down, to just cast your cares upon the Lord because He will 
carry you and carry your burdens. So as soon as we're dismissed, we would encourage you, come on forward and spend some time in prayer. Seek the Lord. Maybe you need salvation. He'll save you. Maybe you need help at this time. You're loaded down with the cares of this life. He'll carry them for you. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord will be to you exactly what you need tonight. So I would encourage you to take advantage of it. Come on down. Spend some time in prayer before going home. May the Lord be with you. Watch and keep you in his love. Fill you with his spirit. and Give you strength for this week. Wisdom and guidance by his Holy Spirit. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I'll just cast all my cares upon you. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I'll just cast all my cares upon you. Good idea. God bless you. This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, contact The Word for Today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.